0: Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBurge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you.
1: Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're gonna fly, we fly like ego.
0: Good morning. Good morning. It is the 22nd of May. It's a Monday. You are listening to Mornings of Carmen here on the Faith Radio Network. So, good morning to you. Good morning to you if you are listening on one of our like actual radio broadcast signals and welcome to you if you're listening streaming on myfaithradio.com and welcome to you if you're listening on the Faith Radio app and if you're saying to yourself, I didn't know I could listen all those ways. You sure can. Uh, You can take us everywhere you go. So I encourage you to download the Faith Radio app and subscribe to Mornings with Carmen. And uh, yeah, you and I can catch up anywhere, anytime that is convenient for you. So um, today's Growing Your Faith verse of the day comes from Psalm 51. And we're gonna talk about the entirety of Psalm 51 here in just a moment. But um, let me highlight these Growing Your Faith verses of the day. And it's Psalm 51, verses 10 and 12. And when I say that, you're going to say to yourself, well, what happened to verse 11? Well, some people don't like verse 11. And so apparently we're skipping over it this morning, which, of course, you know, I don't like. So I'm going to read it as as we have it. And then I'm going to read it all. All right. So from Psalm 51, verses 10 and 12, create in me a clean heart, O God, renew a loyal spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. Okay, all fantastic and wonderful, but it does have you wondering, doesn't it? What's in verse 11 that, I don't know, maybe we didn't want to read? Well, verse 11 says, do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Why might we uh, want to avoid uh, thinking about That well, because we would like to avoid imagining that God would ever do such a thing—that God would ever cast someone away—that God—that God God would ever uh, take His Holy Spirit away from somebody. Like uh, we don't like those ideas. Um, But it is right here in Psalm 51. Uh, And so, what's the context? What's going on here? This is a Psalm, a prayer prayed and then ultimately sung, um, written by David, and it is about David's sin. And we know, um, actually, from the heading of the psalm itself, what the context is. So the occasion of the psalm, so the occasion why it was written, the occasion of the psalm um, is disclosed in the heading. So it says, this is for the director of music. This is a psalm of David. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So the prophet Nathan came to David and exposed David's sin. He literally said, David, you are the man. You are the man. Now, today in our in our culture, when somebody says, you the man, like, you know, it's like a compliment. Uh, this is a conviction. David, you're the man. You you are the one um, who has committed adultery with your neighbor's wife. You, you are the man. You are the one who then had her husband, one of your most faithful fighting men, killed on the front lines of a war you should have been leading, David. David, you are the man, and David is convicted, and Psalm 51 is his prayer. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from Your presence, or take Your holy spirit from me. But restore to me the joy of Your salvation, and grant me a willing spirit, that I might be sustained. Then I will treat. Te- excuse me. I will teach transgressors Your ways, so that sinners will turn back to You. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You who are God, God, my Savior, my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, O God, will not despise. David came clean. David was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan and David acknowledged his sin before the living God. What might your prayer, your Psalm 51 prayer look like today? What would it look like for me to go before God and confess my sin and confess my faith in his faithfulness and offer up a prayer like David offers up, asking God to create in me a pure heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me to restore to me the joy of salvation and to grant me a willing spirit that I would obey him. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge. This is Faith Radio. All right, we're going to begin today with the end in mind, the end end, mortality, death. We have been praying for Tim Keller. We had acknowledged that he had been in and out of the hospital. We have known he has been uh, battling pancreatic cancer now for very nearly three years. Um, We've been praying for his family. We discussed on Friday that he had uh, entered into hospice care. Um, The Lord took him home. The Lord took him home one Friday. Tim Keller took his last breath here in the fullness of the fullness of the presence of the living God um and took his next breath fully in the presence of the living God, but in the absence of um, this life and uh Tim laid claim to the redeeming power of Jesus to the promise of resurrection in jesus christ and um so I was reflecting on how we might talk about this today. And Paul Perot, my producer, um, the producer of this show, who's always so faithfully with us, um, brought forward some audio from the conversation that we had with Tim when he was here with us on the show in March of 2021. And I um, had asked Tim Like, you know, you were diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in June of 2020. Like, why are you still writing books? Like, why are you still doing this? Why aren't you, you know, out there, you know, I don't know, seeing the world and just enjoying your wife? And like, why are you still seeking to advance the gospel? And so let's listen again to um, that portion of the conversation with Tim Keller in March of 2021. I think there are probably people listening right now who are wondering to themselves, well, then why is he doing what he's doing? Why is he writing a book? Why is he doing a radio ministry? Why isn't he out, I don't know, sailing to the ends of the earth? So can you talk about why you persist in advancing the gospel in the midst of what you're dealing with?
1: Oh, yeah. Well, first of all, yeah. I mean, why not say to people, look, uh, give me what I need, but I'm going to go— I'm going to do my bag. What what is it they say? You know, there's places in the world I've never seen. I want to go see that or there's things I want to do. I've never done. That's silly if you're a Christian, because first of all, everything here is just a kind of dim hint of what it's going to be like the new heavens and new earth. I mean, anything here is going to be a million times better and present. Any good thing here is going to be a million times better and present in the new heavens and new earth. And that's where I'm heading. And it'd be silly to do that. Now, the one thing I the one thing you can't do. And actually, the Bible talks about that. There's places in the book of Psalms where it says, I can't praise you from the grave. Hmm. There's a number of places. And you say, oh, that's silly, because when you get to heaven, you pray. Well, that's I don't think what he's saying. The point is, I can't praise him here from the grave unless I write books. (laughs) See, in other words, I can I'll be I'll be fine once I'm dead. I'll be absolutely fine. Way better than you, Carmen. Just to let this you know. Is, I know.
0: I'll be fine once I'm dead. <clears throat> Way better than you, Carmen. No more dim hints, um, but full reality. Tim Keller was so clear about where he was headed, and now he's home. Um, and he was so faithful. Such a faithful brother in Christ. Such a faithful witness to the gospel. Um when we come back, I'm going to um, talk a little bit about one of the most personal things that I think Tim ever wrote, and it was uh, following the death of his mother and by the encouragement of his uh, his friends and, and siblings, um, and it's called The Fear of Death. And um, yeah, it's a very, very brief book. I guess the title of the whole book is On Death, but The Fear of Death is what uh, Tim addresses in in the book. And I just want to share with you, you know, now that he's gone, like, right, what did he say in life about death? That's up next from Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show featured on the Faith Radio Network. There is a lot going on at Faith Radio, tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share at myfaithradio.com. My guess is you spend a fair amount of time on social media. So where do you spend your time? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube? Well, have you followed or liked Faith Radio on those platforms? I would invite you to do so. I'm there as well. If you want to check out uh, my personal pages, you could connect with me individually. We would love to have you uh, use the resources that we have produced and are creating and posting on social media for you to share with others. We got all kinds of stuff from graphics to you know, Bible verses. I don't know. There's all kinds of stuff. Go check it out on your social media. Connect with us on Faith Radio social media, and you know, let's get the word out to others. All right, back to the show again. Thanks for listening. Love connecting with you at myfaithradio.com. Tim Keller um, is now with the Lord, but he he spent a fair amount of time in the last uh, four or five years talking about death and preparing those around him, not only for his death, but seeking that each and all of us would be prepared for death. And that seems maybe like a strange thing to focus on. Um, But now that he's gone, aren't you so grateful that Tim Keller... um, talked about death and and then has died well like in the presence of his sweet wife Kathy I'm wondering I find myself wondering remembering um that the appendix of Tim's book on death that's the title of it on death it's only 100 pages long one of the shortest books he ever wrote um and the appendix of it is co-authored with Kathy Um, and it's a there are two seven day devotionals at the end of that book. And one of those is for the person who is dying, and one of those is for the person losing them. And I find myself wondering if, you know, Kathy and Tim spent time in those kinds of conversations, not only with the Lord, but with each other as death approached. Um, he he begins his book on death with an examination of our fear of death and he he talks about how conscience the fact that we are con the, the fact that we're conscious um makes cowards of us all and then our conscience the fact that we know we are sinners also makes cowards of us all um he highlights hebrews 2:14 and 15 And this is about Jesus, that by his death, we might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Um, And he talks about how unnatural death is, and yet it is um, universal, like everyone is going to experience it themselves, and we are all going to experience the death of many, many people who we love. Um, he addresses where our fear of death comes from um, and how sanitized our lives um, have become, um, in part because of medical advances and technology, but also in part because we're wealthy enough to remove it from our homes and to um, have it have the body cared for intended to by others and um, and dressed and made to appear as lifelike as possible. And then we don't even dig our own graves anymore. Um, Other people do these things for us. And so the way you feel about death and the way that you deal with a body um, are very far removed in the culture in which we now live. We also don't talk a lot at funerals about sin, and death. And so when we have to face the death of people who we love, we don't necessarily have language for it. We don't have categories for it. Tim talks about um, hope and explaining that Christian hope is uniquely powerful in the face of death because Christian hope is personal, uh, Death does not strip us of our individuality. We don't become less of who we are when we die. In fact, we become more of who we are because we're no longer corrupted by sin. So can you imagine the beauty of your relationship with God once sin no longer um, has any influence over you? And Christian hope isn't just spiritual. It actually involves real people and real places and real things. It's, it's a perfected reality we are going to eat and drink in with the Son of God. We are going to inhabit uh, places that He went ahead to prepare for us. We are going to be at home with the Father. We are going to be reunited with every other person in, in all time and all space that put their faith in Jesus, the Christ. And Christian hope maximizes our joy. Tim Keller reminds us that, we are going to have perfect communion with Christ. When he says to me, I'm going to be way better off than you. I mean, I'm headed, I'm headed to heaven and I'm going to be, you know, way better off than you, Carmen. When he says that, he's talking about the reality of living not just as one who is fully known, which we already are fully known by God, but in perfect communion with the one who knows us fully in that we will fully know him as well. He writes this, when you at last see the God of the universe looking at you with love, it will inflict on you a joy that will make all of the potentialities of your soul erupt, and you will experience the glorious freedom of a child of God. Finally, Tim Keller says, Christian hope is sure. It is certain. He says we do not anxiously wonder if we have been good enough to go to God when we die. When death strips us of everything else, there is no greater hope. Tim Keller um, lived a radiant life here on earth, and now he lives an even more radiant life in the fullness of the presence of God. And I love that he spent so much time in his waning years talking with us about death and leaving us resources related to death. And so, as we consider the reality of death today and the reality of the death of this one individual, um, I thought maybe we could pray together just in gratitude for a life well lived and a brother now at home with the Lord. Um, so, let's do that. Let's pray. Holy God, in life and in death, we belong to you. So we thank you for the one we have known here as Tim Keller. We thank you for revealing yourself to him by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we thank you for giving him Kathy as his partner in life and ministry. We thank you for their family. We thank you for the divine appointments that you set and the good works you prepared in advance for him to do throughout his life. And we thank you Um that he was so faithful. Thank you for the living demonstration he was of the gospel and thank you that um, he ran his race all the way to the end. I would ask that you would use his death as you used his life to draw others unto yourself. Holy God, may other people find the one who is the way and the truth and the life because of Tim's witness. And then may we follow as he led so faithfully use us up in the days that we have left upon the earth that we might glorify you thank you for the gift of life help us to use it well to your glory until the day comes when we live here no more but with you eternally because of christ in whose name we pray amen you're listening to mornings with carmen we'll be right back All right, how do you identify? I uh I listened to a a response to a survey question um and tens of thousands of people responded to the question and so it was interesting to acknowledge that most people identify actually th- with their profession. Most people don't if you were to ask them like, you know, hey, how do you identify or you know, what what are your identifying features like Do you identify more as your gender or your race or your marital status or your relationship status, maybe as a parent, not just as a spouse? Or do you identify most as a religious person or most as a political, with a political party? How do you identify? You know what most people's answer to the question is? Like overwhelmingly, people identify themselves by what they do. People identify themselves mostly by what they do. Like, by their job, by their vocation. I am a doctor. I am a lawyer. I identify as a teacher. Or, yeah. And so you're asking yourself, well, how does Carmen identify? Let me just tell you, I don't identify as a talk show radio host. I just don't. (laughs) I mean, it is what I do. um, But it's not how I identify. Um, So how do you identify? I I need you to sort of ask yourself that question. Like, what's the primary way that I identify? And I'll just tell you, I identify as a Christian. I identify as a sold-out believer in Jesus. I identify as an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. I identify as a minister of reconciliation, an agent of grace. I mean, that's how I identify. How do you identify? What's your, like, primary identification? Daniel Bennett's going to join us next. We're going to talk about um, people who identify as religious or identify with religion and whether or not that makes a person more or less civic-minded. So are you civic-minded? Are you concerned about civil society? Are you concerned about civil discourse and civil civic engagement? Um, does your religiosity influence that one way or the other. That's up next. You're on Mornings with Carmen. All right. This is a a quick check-in. So I'm going to read some words and I'm going to just ask you to gauge your emotional response. All right. So this is just a uh, we're going to we're going to lift up some words and then we're going to bring Daniel Bennett into the conversation. And we're going to talk about why we're talking about these particular terms. So do you have a positive or negative or neutral reaction to the word activism? Bridge building. Citizen. Civic engagement. Civil society. Civility. Do you have a positive, a negative, or a neutral reaction to the phrase common ground or the word democracy, diversity, justice, liberty, patriotism? Do you have a positive, a negative, or a neutral reaction to the word pluralism, privilege, racial equity? Social justice. Daniel Bennett is joining us now from John Brown University and the Uneasy Citizenship blog. Uh, Daniel, why am I asking these questions and what do we know about Mm -hmm. how evangelicals respond to these terms versus how um, atheists or agnostics in the culture respond to these words?
2: So there's a new study out uh, and you can find it on, I'm sure you'll put it in the show notes, Religion News Service. Um, published a study from the Philanthropy for Active Civic Engagement. And uh, what they were able to collect is people's perceptions on these terms. And uh, what you find is there are some terms that generally uh, poll pretty highly, uh, regardless of whether, uh, you know, of your religious tradition or of your uh, political inclinations or what have you. But there are some terms that are definitely uh, more, I guess, polarizing, so the term patriotism, for example, is rates much higher among uh, evangelicals uh, and, and conservatives than, than, uh, than, Demo- than Democrats and, and, and those who are unreligious, I guess, is the way to parse that. Terms like uh, democracy, civil society, civic engagement, uh, racial equity is, is really high for atheists. Or agnostics compared to to, to evangelicals, so it's interesting data to say that some of these terms, which get at a lot of the same issues or a lot of the same uh, principles or you know positive goals, nevertheless could rub people the wrong way depending on their uh, depending on where they're sitting.
0: Yeah, I think that um, like the word uh, justice, you know, that's almost almost equal in terms of uh, how people the level at which people are responding to a particular term. And then yes. I would see, I would wonder Daniel, if um, people of faith, particularly people of evangelical Christian faith, when they use that term, how are they hearing it? What do they mean mm-hmm. by it? And then how are people who are atheist or agnostic hearing that word and responding right. to it? It's one thing for justice to be like really important. And for me to yep. have uh a real concern for justice, but what kind of justice we're talking about and what that looks like could be very different
2: yeah, and I wish they would have added a term like uh, human rights to the uh, to this because I think you'd probably get a similar issue here right so you know evangelicals and Christians would see human rights as being rooted in the image of God and and hopefully we would root that or rate that pretty highly um, but atheists and agnostics might also rank it highly uh, because of maybe government initiatives that, uh, you know, attempt to codify and secure human rights. But you're right, even a term like pluralism rates really highly, which is encouraging for me. Uh, so that that's good uh, that we're not seeing that much uh, disagreement o- on these particular terms. But, yeah, I think it's an interesting exercise for sure.
0: Yeah, and I, I think it gives us an opportunity to, you know, just ask the question of other people. Hey, how do you hear this term? You know, the liberty is really important to me. Um, And here's why, because, you know, for me, it's rooted in the gospel um, or, you know, or pluralism is really important to me because I actually do believe people have agency and because they're created in the image of God. Like, I think people ought to be able to make their own choices and sometimes they're going to choose things I don't choose. Um, And that's going to result in in a culture where people have a, a wide variety of ideas and then we get to engage with those ideas. And um you know, I don't want everybody to be forced to fit into, you know, into one mold. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that there are opportunities here for all kinds of conversation. And so just wanted to, you know, lift it up mm-hmm. as uh, as an interesting thing that folks might um, consider talking about. Um, let's talk about the pandemic. It was depressing in many, many ways. Um, did it also depress or suppress faith? What are we learning there?
2: Yeah, this is one of the most interesting and consequential questions I think coming out of the pandemic. Uh, you know, for for most of us, uh, we lived in areas or, or states or communities where uh, the pandemic changed at least temporarily almost every aspect of our lives, and this includes uh, the ability to attend uh, religious worship services. Um, this may not have been mandated from the government, like it you know certainly here in Arkansas, that was never an issue. Um, but congregations changed the way they operated for a time. Uh, you know even our church, it was pretty uh, positive and optimistic about trying to push through you know we we did take time away and and uh, pivoted for a time to video streaming and we're still doing that even though we've been back in person for quite some time, but we still stream the services. and the question becomes, did those upheavals, particularly in the area of religious worship, did that change the dynamics of say, church attendance, uh, regular attending for worship, and what we're learning is it's a small but, I think, important effect on how people uh, attend Sunday morning services if you're Christian or other types of services if you're, if you're another religion. Um, it didn't completely disrupt, right? It's not like we had millions and millions of people all of a sudden say, yeah, this isn't as important to me, uh, but it did affect, I think, how we study these questions moving forward.
0: So, do you feel like church membership is past its cultural or social prime?
2: Yeah, I think this is an interesting question. Uh, there, you know, Gall- there's a Gallup survey that came out a few years ago, or a couple of years ago, that showed for the first time uh, in the asking the question, more people were not members of a church than than were members, and that got a lot of attention in the sense that oh, I guess religion's declining again. But another perspective on this is that well, church membership really depending on the type of church you go to and the type of culture that we live in now in terms of of church uh, attending may not be a good metric for whether or not we are attending regular services. So there are some, you know, certainly, uh, you know, small denominational churches that still prioritize membership and have member training classes and things like this. But there are other churches, especially larger, maybe non-denominational multi-site churches where, membership really isn't prioritized as much. Maybe they, that's not something that's really important. And so maybe you go every Sunday, but you're not a member of the church. And maybe that question is becoming a little at- antiquated. Hmm.
0: I guess I also find myself wondering if you, if you don't ever become a member, an express member of a particular body, right, hmm. of a particular church, and yet you regard yourself as a member of the body of Christ— like, mm-hmm. where are you in it? Like, if we, yeah. I mean, I, it's like a like a dislocated member of the body. If you're never actually aligning yourself in a, hey, I'm putting my name on the on the roll. Like, I, I am counted yeah. among this body of believers in this particular place together as not only the fellowship of believers in a worshiping community, but you know, the, the doers of good that God has set before us to do, like in the here and now. I, I guess I, yeah. I find myself wondering if, you know, I don't think the Christian experience was ever intended to be individual. I mean, Jesus calls us together as a body of believers. And so if you're never joining any particular body of believers, um, then, you know, like how functionally are you a member of a body. I mean, I, do you see what I'm getting at?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a difference in, between the social science and demography questions that we're asking about how to measure religious commitment. Um, then the, the the deeper, more fundamental question of maybe just a lack of commitment in general that we're seeing in American society, even opposed or outside religion. Uh, and, and we could, you know, people are maybe just less willing to commit to things, less willing to, like you said, put your name on something and and stick with it. I think the, the religious culture that we have in this country, paradoxically, right, gives us a ton of options and is just shows the robustness and strength of institutional religion, even during periods of decline that we're seeing right now. But the other side of that coin is there's just so many options that maybe we don't feel compelled to put our name on the, on the membership roll. And so we can kind of be noncommittal when it comes to the church that we go to and maybe you would regard yourself as well, no, I'm a member of the body of Christ certainly I've been born again and I've given my life to Jesus but and I'm being facetious here a little bit but yeah but this pastor said something the other day that rubbed me the wrong way and you know the child care isn't particularly good at this service and they sang an old song and that doesn't really strike me so I'm going to try the other church across town and see how that goes. Um, and I, I think in some communities that's pretty pretty normal to be able to just church hop, right, from one mm. congregation to the other. So you might go almost every single week and yet never really belong to a church. So that you're right. That's a bigger, I think, more important question, but it also complicates the social science of how we measure religiosity.
0: Mm. Um, yes, I live in a community where there's always an it church.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: so like you know what's the it church now and you know that's where everybody's like flocking for some reason and it's such a strange just strange phenomenon um because i do think god intends for us to be knit together deeply in in community with a body of believers and like literally we don't function well when we are apart from the body and the body doesn't function as god intends when we're not um Actively engaged, you know, as a participant part of it. So, uh, so this is Carmen's appeal for everyone to be <laughs> engaged in a local body of believers and not disconnected from the body. So, we're going to continue our conversation with Daniel Bennett here in just a moment. We haven't talked about QAnon in quite some time. We certainly haven't talked about QAnon and the church, but the two are related, and there are people. Um, Engaged in local congregations who also are a part of um, very real conspiracy theorist groups like QAnon. And we're going to talk about the effect that um, people who believe such things and are engaged in such groups have on the local body of believers where they are also um, a part. So Uh, Daniel's going to brief us in on QAnon and the church. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. When we talk about the walk of faith or walking by faith or taking each step of life with the good shepherd, we imagine ourselves as sheep walking with him. Or maybe we see ourselves in the disciples with Jesus walking from town to town throughout the land we call holy. Every Christian wants to walk where Jesus walked, but not everyone's going to get to go to Israel. So if you want to see the holy land the way it might have looked through the eyes of Jesus, take a journey with Max Lucado. We're giving away a copy of his new book, In the Footsteps of the Savior, every day in May. Thanks to Thomas Nelson Publishing, you can walk in the footsteps of Jesus. You can enter to win on the Faith Radio app or at myfaithradio.com. It's the Every Day in May giveaway, so enter today at myfaithradio.com. From like January to June of 2021, um, every single week there was a new article or study or somebody talking about QAnon and evangelical Christians in the United States of America, headlines like how QAnon captured the American church or QAnon conspiracies sway faith groups, one in four evangelical Christians in America believe in QAnon. Um, why so many QAnon believers are evangelical Christians, on and on and on and on and on. Um, But we haven't talked about it in, you know, like something like two years now. So, Daniel Bennett, is QAnon still a thing? And if so, what is it?
2: So, yeah, I I do think it's still a thing. It's not as if uh, the message boards and the, the YouTube channels and other things just disappeared. I do think after this last presidential election, it definitely lost some of its luster or appeal just as a reminder QAnon, as a movement as a as a group of of uh you know loosely connected conspiracies emerged during the trump years uh, as a way to explain the events of the day the general gist is uh q was supposedly a high-ranking government official with this top-secret clearance that was essentially giving people a peek behind the curtain of how government was really functioning during some tumultuous times. And the general message was that President Trump uh, is kind of masterminding this this effort to root out evil political actors and elected officials and and bureaucrats exposing corruption and... uh, essentially leading the U.S. out of this period of darkness. Well, when President Trump lost the election, a lot of Q folks, QAnon folks, you know, interpreted this as, well, you know, this must just be another play, and this is really going to take shape on the, uh, on the inauguration. You know, President Biden will be arrested, and it'll be this whole thing. And then when that didn't happen, I think a lot of folks, folks got disillusioned and walked away. It's still around, and you can find some information about it online. Don't get too far down in the rabbit hole here. Um, But I think for our purposes, I think it's interesting to look where it's most popular And the Pew Research Center and the Public Religion Research Institute have collected information on this over the years. And QAnon, uh, as a set of beliefs, tends to be more popular with people from different religious communities, particularly white evangelical Christians.
0: When you think about um, what happened on January 6th, um, it feels like there there's conversational connection, at least, um, and there are particular individuals. Um, I'm thinking here about you know the guy who is, uh, um, like called the QAnon shaman. Let's say, mm-hmm. um, you know where that term is actually used as an identifier of an individual. Do you feel like, um, like January sixth has now become the language with which maybe we have replaced the language of QAnon, but that there is uh, there is a connection between the way we use those two phrases maybe is the way to say that? I don't know. I'm, I'm fishing a little yeah. bit here because I'm trying no. to make a connection.
2: No, I think there's a relationship there. I think a lot of folks saw January 6th as uh, an effort. Yeah, I guess if you were more supportive of the actions of January 6th, the Patriots standing up to and illegal, and and uh, uh, really just devastating blow to our de- to our democratic system. Um, and I think the the folks who were marching and, and and you know essentially committing violence at the Capitol that day uh, saw themselves as part of this larger Q narrative. So I think there's definitely connections there. I do think since after the election, like I said, and after the inauguration. A lot of folks were disillusioned and and just kind of left or, or walked away from the more organized aspects of this belief system, um, and so maybe there hasn't been much criticism lately. But I do think other terms have kind of replaced it in the local vernacular. So if QAnon is a threat to democracy, which I think it it is, uh, and a threat to the church, I think the more likely term that is being critiqued and thrown around almost everywhere nowadays is Christian nationalism, especially mm. white Christian nationalism. That becomes, and I'm not saying that there's nothing to criticize about actual Christian nationalism, but it seems like every, <laughs> every week there's a new story about the ways in which Christian nationalism is corrupting the church or uh, otherwise negatively affecting democracy. In a lot of cases, you could replace Christian nationalism with QAnon and you'd find a lot of the same threads of criticism. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm a critic of both of these things rightly defined. Um, but I feel like in the popular media and popular narratives, Christian nationalism is the uh, big term right now. QAnon has moved to the background.
0: Ah, see, that's really helpful. That, that's, that, is, that is really helpful. Um, give an assessment. Like, uh, let's just say tomorrow that you are going to participate in a QAnon in the church webinar. What kinds <laughs> of things might we hear Daniel Bennett say on such a thing?
2: So, Carmen, are you suggesting that there might be such a webinar?
0: <laughs> can people still um, participate in it? It's the American oh, yeah. Values Coalition, QAnon yeah. and the church webinar. It's happening tomorrow, AmericanValues.org. Yeah.
2: yeah, you can register for free. and It'll be myself. It'll be Caitlin Chess, who I believe has come on your show once or twice. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be Mike Austin, who's a philosophy professor at Eastern Kentucky University. He and I attended the same church for a time when I was there. Um, but yeah, so th- this webinar is going to focus on QAnon's role in the church, historically, but also uh, even even today, I can't speak for what Mike and Caitlin are going to be talking about, but the chapter that I wrote for the book focuses on the role of trust in uh, our democratic systems and institutions, as well as the effects of conspiratorial belief systems on our Christian witness. And I think it's an important thing for for Christians not to bury our heads in the sand or approach politics or public life with a sense of naivete. And just always accept the official line on everything, but you know, at some point, you do have to look at uh, the the overarching circumstances, right? And are you seeking an explanation for? You have to ask yourself: Are you seeking an explanation for for something because you deeply disagree with it, and you're just kind of grasping at straws here, or is this actually a compelling? And and reasonable uh, set of beliefs, and I think it's really important for the church, not because we're trying to just, uh, you know, wave away truth or diminish truth for the sake of being more homo- more harmonious in a culture that is less hospitable to the gospel. But like with anything else, if we find a belief system or political candidate or set of issues more compelling to us or more exciting for us than the truths of of Jesus and our experience with the gospel and the good news, and our identity as Christians becomes secondary to our identity as political actors or, you know, self-described freedom fighters or Q activists, then that does a lot of harm to not only the gospel, but also just the appeal of the church to a culture that might not understand what the church is actually about, um, and this is dangerous at times, right? Because a lot of the folks that we know here locally in siloam Springs, who certainly wouldn't have gone to the Capitol on January 6th, um, they see QAnon at least, uh, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple people in particular, as kind of a noble thing. Like, mm-hmm. one of the tenets of QAnon is that kids were being kidnapped and trafficked for nefarious purposes, and so a couple of the people that I'm thinking of were moms, like local moms who saw this as a way to protect children. And so it's an insidious belief system, and this could easily make its way into the church as a form of justice, right? We have to mm-hmm. rescue these kids. Um, and so like anything else, I think, I think for Christians, it really comes down to the word, and this is a roundabout way of saying it, Carmen, it's about discernment, right? Mm-hmm. It's about being wise and discerning truth from fiction,
0: yeah, it's about uh, a commitment to the truth wherever it leads but also i think being continually willing to bring what i think is true um back into the light and evaluating it like am you know like right am i honestly believing what is true or has someone led me to believe something that um is a version of the truth that serves them in some particular way and i got to i got to take that I, I, very, very seriously. I think I think discernment is the really good word for all of this. Daniel, as always, um, thank you so much. Thank you for what you're doing each and every day at John Brown University and at the Uneasy Citizenship blog. We definitely look forward to your upcoming book. Um thank you. And yeah, thanks in advance um, for uh, tomorrow's webinar. You guys can check it out, AmericanValues.org and sign up for tomorrow's webinar on QAnon and the church. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. Hey, uh, hour one is now uh, in the books, as we say, but hour two is coming up next. So we're going to talk about um, we're going to we're going to talk about advocacy for people who are suffering with mental um, mental health issues, and then also incarcerated. Um, yeah, we got another hour of mornings with Carmen up next. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support.